I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. And on this episode, we are going to discuss the pages that take us up to the end of part two. If you're reading the vintage edition, it's through page 151, but basically just through the end of part two. And uh, where should we start? (laughs) This is uh, an incredible section. One thing that I was struck by uh, Tim, I want to mention this to you first because of how many times you've read this book, and I want to see what you, you know, what you think of this before we go to Heidi. Um, this is a book that is many different kinds of books. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that? Can you say more? <sighs> I was afraid you'd say that. Um, <laughs> it's an adventure. It's a romance. It's what are the other? What, it's what a classic. The other? Yeah, there's a. There's, it's got the trappings of a classic western, but it, mm-hmm. you know, this section is in particular. Uh, very much the sort of budding romance story, but a lot of the elements of what makes a Western romantic, right? Mm. In this section. First, at the beginning, it looked like it was a road book, right? With a yeah. kind of a road buildings roman. And then we lose, we lose their old friend, right? But then in this section, he gains a new friend of sorts. <laughs> and we get the romance <laughs> and we get the, uh, the, the sort of classic elements of a romantic, of what makes a, of a, what makes a Western novel a Western story, romantic, little R romantic. And then, well, after this section, we're going to get another kind of novel. Um, uh, yeah. Almost a, almost a Graham Greenian, you know, type of story going on. Um, and, and I was just struck by how, he, how well Cormac McCarthy can tell any of these kinds of stories. He, there's even a part, one of my favorite sections of the book is in the middle of this section. It's the part where the friends break all these horses that are brought down from the mountains. And that part of the book reminded me of those obscure sections of Moby Dick that most people kind of gloss over, which are kind of technical treatises on the trimming of whale blubber. and Yeah, or farming in Anna Karenina. Yeah, or farming in Anna Karenina. So the it's kind of- and Les Miserables. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of a close-up on one aspect of life, in this case, the breaking of horses. But I think there's an added aspect to that section of the book, which is we finally see what has been rumored to be true about John Grady Cole, that he is an exemplary horseman. And the way that Cormac McCarthy builds that up for us, I think is really magisterial. So, hmm. and, and again, he never, he never tells us kind of what we're looking for. He just shows it to us. And the way that he shows us that John Grady Cole um, is such an incredible horseman is that 
the number of people that are watching him work increases every hour. It starts with 10 and then it's 20. And by the end, isn't it more than a hundred like people? A festival has been formed and they yeah, all stay out. Exactly. Their, the their kids and their kids. You guys, you guys remember the book, um, the kid's book about the steam shovel. Oh, Mike, Mike, Mike Mulligan and the steam yes. shovel. Do you remember I, that? I don't know kid? that. You never read that as a kid. This book is from like the thirties. Or the 50s or whatever. But it's about this guy who he and his steam shovel do all this work very quickly in a town. And every, from all people from all the towns all around the area come and watch the work. And then they find themselves that they've done the work so well that they're buried in the inside of the, the town hall that they just dug. And it reminded me of that where people come, the first the children come, and then the old people come, and then the firemen come, and then people are coming from the villages all around. And that's what it, that's what it reminded me of. So. Yeah. Obviously, Cormac yeah. McCarthy was trying to recreate a 1950s children's book. Surely. I Surely. would not that was like to see what text. Cormac McCarthy would do with Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel book. <laughs> like a retelling by Cormac McCarthy. Um, I think that one of the greatest pleasures of human existence is seeing a master at their craft. Mm. Like, I love that. And at anything, I just find so much pleasure in seeing people who are just masters at something, seeing them work. I love that. And I felt like in that particular section that you just described, Tim, that I was having like a double experience of that. One is watching John Grady Cole and the other is reading Cormac McCarthy's prose. It's just mm. so, I, it just feels like drinking a really good wine. You know, it's just mm. so wonderful to, to see it unfold and to see someone who's just so, so good at something. You know, one of the things that I like so much about this book is that I feel like McCarthy takes pains to earn the reader's trust. And what I mean by that is, Heidi, you know, I were talking off the air that we were asking ourselves, was Cormac McCarthy a horseman? You know, yeah. like, that, like his... How does he I know trust him. Stuff? How does he know the this stuff? The vision of the description and the research. Exactly. And the things in Spanish and English. And I, yeah, exactly. How does he? It's amazing. There's a story about uh, James Joyce when he was living in Paris. He was writing about Dublin and he couldn't remember which color the bus tickets were, if they were green or if they were red. And he wrote back to a friend of his, and I think the friend said, yeah, they're, they're green. Because that, I mean, that, that was so important to him to get that exactly right. And I have a sense that McCarthy performed that level of inquiry about, specifically about the land and the horses and what it takes to break horses um, and what would make John Grady Cole so exemplary? I mean, like Rollins is really good also. This is, it's clear, but yeah, John Grady right. Cole is dealing with a, a, a level Even of Even Rollins looks at him and right. recognizes right. that his buddy is like on a different level. Yeah. It's like, you know, he's Dwayne Wade and John Grady's LeBron James. Right. So, you know, one of the things, I have this theory that I have been, I'm not ready to like write about it, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. And I think that one thing that all great artists, um, it doesn't matter the art form, but all great artists are obsessed with is the way people work. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at 
a great impressionist painting or you look at a great novel or a great filmmaker, the greatest of them are obsessed with the details that make up labor mm. because every story is made up of people engaging with some kind of labor. Like all the, the big, the big sweeping dramas have the, all the major plot points that we, and all the characterization happens because people are engaged in some kind of work and that work takes them to the next decision that has to get made, which then takes them to the next bit of labor, which takes them to the next decision that has to get made. I think you see it in great movies where the, where the filmmaker takes pains to, to show us the details of the work that's going on. I think you see it like even in paintings when the painting captures the farmer in the field or whatever, there's no action happening, but in the still that they're capturing, there's a, there's like a, a, a veracity to the labor that they're capturing. And I think you especially see it in novels. I think, I don't think there is a single great novelist who captures a story that is truly great, like a truly great novel that doesn't care about the labor that is happening in, in the story. And I think you particularly, you see this in genre books actually, because the genres are almost always um, consumed with a kind, like the genre is tied to a kind of labor. Think about, work. think about yes. crime fiction, right? It's the work of the detective. Mm -hmm. um, the mystery novel is the work of the detective. So if you read like a, the truly great crime fiction, it's, you're almost always reading dramatized versions of how someone goes about breaking down a case, for example. I think that's an example of it. But, um, I, and I think we see that in McCarthy here. Moby Dick being I another totally example. Agree. I think what we're talking, I think the idea is this, like, it's the poetry of labor. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that when we did A River Runs Through It about fishing, because I yeah. don't yeah. fish. And I was so moved by the description of the fishing. Just, I just loved it. Like I can't get enough of the precision of detail in describing work as you're saying, David. I, and I just was, I just loved it in all the pretty horses. You know what I, I find so fascinating about this subject, Heidi, is that now I, I do know fishing. Um, mm -hmm. You don't know fishing so well, but you know, when you read a river runs through it, you know, when you read the horse breaking section and all the pretty horses, this is true. Mm -hmm. This is true. I, I have no experience with this, but somehow I know that what's being recounted to me is accurate. It's, it's, a it's like a faithful representation from a practitioner, mm -hmm. just like the fishing sections are a faithful representation from a practitioner. And what I'm so curious about is how do we know that even when we've not experienced the thing being practiced? You know, like, because I have read Like, it'd be books. easy to fool me about Yeah, but I, but I think there's something fixing a in motorcycle. <laughs> it would be. But, but my point is, I think that if someone was not being truthful in their account of fixing a motorcycle, even the uninitiated novice, you, me, Heidi, would be, we, we would not be so compelled and convinced by the account. Hmm. You know, the, I said the motorcycle thing because there's a story that I've had that I've like, I wrote a draft for like 12 years ago and it's like, I've had it in my head ever since. And there's this key part in it, like that involves a guy fixing a motorcycle. And I know nothing about fixing motorcycles. I've never even ridden on a motorcycle. I mean, I guess I, when I was a kid, I rode like on the back of my uncles, but I've never like driven a motorcycle. I'm not a motorcycle guy. And here I was all of a sudden, like 
Well, crud, I now have to know a lot about fixing an old motorcycle. So I did all this research about fixing a motorcycle for like one paragraph, right? But if mm-hmm. that one paragraph doesn't work, then the whole story falls the whole apart. Story falls and so then apart. I'm like, what am I doing writing a story that involves a motorcycle that in which the story will fail if I don't capture the motorcycle? But right. like, it, without it, you know that it doesn't work and you have this compulsion to tell the story. And so then you have the duty to, to do the work so that you can help your audience engage in the story with you. And like, it's funny how sometimes the creation of art is like that intersection of, Hey, wait a second. I was going to say compulsion and do- duty, but in a way it is like duty and desire. Right? Duty and desire. <laughs> like you have this compulsion to tell the story, but then you have a duty to your audience to, to tell, tell a true story. Yeah. 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 Well, and to add to this conversation, I also think that a great novelist, someone who's a master of that craft, they are able to forge connections between the work they're describing and the impact that that work makes on the story and then on the souls of the characters. And I, I, that, that does so much to help understand and enter into the world of the story and of the characters. Mm. Like you've learned so much about JGC, right? John Grady Cole in this <laughs> section because you see him intent upon the work, the detail, the precision of this work and the, the conquering, the overcoming of the challenge and how, how that shapes the rest of the story and tells us so much about him. Hmm. And so there's, there's the thing itself, right? The breaking of horses, that is an important thing. And then there's also what it represents to John Grady Cole and then how it serves and, and works within the story. So there's just this multiple levels mm. of why something like that is so pleasurable to us as readers uh, and just so, so masterful. Like it's such a gift to the literary world to give us, you know, the breaking of horses, which I would never know anything about. And it's not like I'm reading the book to learn about breaking horses. I could look that yeah. up on the internet. Right. You could watch a YouTube I, video. <laughs> yes. But it's not the same thing as reading the book in such beautiful prose, which is itself a craft that I'm so drawn into. Hmm. So I just loved it. I, I read a book. I think I've mentioned it on the air before. Uh, the book is The Brothers K by Daniel Mason, David James Duncan. <laughs> Oh yeah, not yeah, the right. brothers Karamazov. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I was like, another no, no, no. guy wrote that book. No, it's right. the brothers. Ke- I know the one you're talking about. I, it was on yeah. a list of best novels about the Pacific Northwest. Huh. I read a book that he had written called "The River Y," which I th- is mm-hmm. a delightful book. Such a lovely novel, and it's so funny. And so I was really excited to read "The Brothers K," and I started reading it. And about fifty pages in, I had this sense that he was lying to me. That he was, there was this exchange between these two brothers. And I was like, you know what? The author's preaching at me. He's not really being true to these characters. Instead, he's using these characters as kind of like mouth, mouthpieces to preach at me. So I put the book down. And then a few years later, I thought, it's too, it, it, I'm being too hard on it. I'm going to go back to the Brothers K. And so I started reading it again. And the exact same thing happened. I was like, you know, He's just preaching at me. He's using these characters to preach at me. And what's so interesting is he, because I liked the Brothers K already, I had opened myself up to be taught by David James Duncan. You know, I was like, I'm going to take him on as my teacher. I'm going to, I'm going to accept the rules of his universe. But then when he started not telling the truth, 
I couldn't listen to him anymore as a teacher. And what's really interesting also is I feel like the same thing happens with Cormac McCarthy. Like he's telling me the truth. I'm willing to listen to him as a teacher because he's telling me the truth about horse breaking. Mm. And I'm going to foreshadow what's going to happen in the next section. Bear with me, you guys. I don't want to get too far out over our skis. But the next (laughs) section is kind of like it's a prison novel. To your point, David, it has a bunch of different types of like a bunch of different genres. It's, it's going to become a prison novel. And those of you who are a little bit squeamish about violence, I understand and I sympathize. And you're going to need to read with care. You're going to need, there's, a, there's about five pages coming that they're the stuff of nightmare if you're not careful with it. So don't be afraid to skip ahead. Okay, anyway, all that to say, isn't, I think there's a real relationship between someone being faithful and truthful in his craft as a, as a storyteller and our response to him as readers, our response to taking that person on as hmm. a teacher and even like a moral guide. And I'm reluctant to take them on as a moral guide if I don't think they're telling me the truth in their, in like the activity of their narrative. Hmm. Hey, Okay. Let's let's pause there, because this conversation is really interesting, and we need. To, I, I want to kind of do a summary of these chapters, yeah. so we can bear, you know, get our bearings. Um, do you, Heidi? Do you want me to give you? Do you, do you, you didn't think about this ahead of time, right? We know no. that. Let's go backwards a little bit. So at the end of this <laughs> section, John Grady and Rollins get picked up, basically, and that's mm-hmm. gonna, what's going to lead into this prison novel thing. But before that, his there's like two essential, a, a series of relationships which develop in John Grady's life. Of course, there is Alejandra, who is the daughter of the man who owns this big spread that he and Rollins are working at. He has earned the trust of the, uh, the, the man who owns the spread because of his gift with horses and his insight into the way horses work and what makes a good horse and all that kind of thing. He has, the beginning of this section, he has uh, broken and trained, you know, a few dozen horses. And so, so he's earned his trust. But while he's living there, the relationship begins with Alejandra, the daughter, and the daughter of the Hacendado. The Hacendado, that's right. Don Hector Rocha y Villarreal. Nice. What Tim said. I kind of butchered the last name. Villarreal. That guy. And, um, but he has, he, he is confronted by her grandmother, who basically says, Aunt, right? Isn't it great aunt? By an older lady in the family. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think like the matriarch I, of the family. Yeah, the matriarch of the family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. And she says, This is a very bad idea. You need to watch out for her honor. He says, Okay. They play chess during this scene. And then he goes about his way. But of course, Alejandra, being an independent young woman, deems the wisdom of the matriarch of the family to be unsatisfactory and comes to John Grady in his bed. And then next thing you know, she's in France and he's not in France and he's playing pool with, with the, her dad. With her dad. And then next thing you know. Who doesn't know? Right. Like he doesn't, the dad does not know about their relationship. Okay. I have a question about this. David, when you're finished with your summary, so, this so is So that's one basically of the it. So then at the end of it, they're yeah. picked up. Okay. So mm-hmm. this section, we see his horses, we see his gift with horses we see his relationship. We see his relationship with the girl. 
and, and the, we see and then, paradise, like this right. life of paradise that he's living. It's everything he's ever wanted. And then things fall apart at the end. And they're on the run once, well, they're on the move once again. So go ahead, Tim. My question, and maybe we can't answer it now, is let me make an assertion. And I'm not 100% convinced of my assertion, but I will play it as if I'm 100%. I think the father actually knows fairly early. Is this and like I, a does Penelope know that the beggar is Odysseus conversation? Yeah, it is kind of one of those conversations. Yeah. I think that he, I think that he might know. It, it, and I think that he would be mortified at the idea of his daughter sleeping with this man. However, I also think that he is, a, I think that he looks at John Grady Cole as the possible future. I, I mean, maybe I'm crazy. Am I crazy here? Because I totally recognize like all of the obstacles to my point of view, which is basically the old world would never approve of a gringo receiving um, the land that has accumulated from the Hacendado that's been in his like family's yes. hands for 170 years. I absolutely get that as like an almost insurmountable obstacle to my point of view. But when I read this book, I think, man, okay, when did they, they, they had to have known the aunt and the father had to have known fairly early that Alejandra is sneaking out. They had eyes on her, I think, pretty early on. And I think they knew that she was sneaking out to like be with John Grady Cole. And I, my, I think I'm going to argue that the father might have turned a blind eye, but the aunt is actually the one who would not allow him to turn a blind eye. Am I crazy? Esta loco? <laughs> I think even if you're right, it's not a major point in the story. I think what's really important is that we have a division between the old world and the new world mm. and that that division is not quite in focus for JGC yet. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really know. Like he thinks of it in very American terms. Like I'm a poor kid and she's a rich girl, right? Like, but he's not yet thinking about the obstacles, like the, the iron division that separates him from ever being a part of there. And, and yeah. we as readers are not even yet really aware of that. We know that that's what, that's what this matriarch thinks, right? We know that she is saying that, but we don't yet know whether or not we believe it, right? We are Americans. He's writing this for American readers. And so we, we're not yet behind the curtain knowing what's holding us back, what's, what's holding these two apart. Um, he's thinking, I'm poor. She's rich. I'm an employee. She's the employer's daughter. I'm, you know, a gringo. She's part of this culture and established within it. And that to him is the obstacle, one of the things that I was thinking about, one of the things I love about this section is the way it actually, it's romantic, not just in the sense that, that it's romantic about the work of the cowboy, the horse, the horse lover, the horse whisperer. There's also a, 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 like a romance about the culture that he's working in. Like you've got this beautiful ranch. It's this 
idyllic place. And that's kind of subversive in a lot of Western stories, right? Because in Mexico and a lot of Western stories is like this desolate, uncivilized mm -hmm. place where a lot of the enemies are. But here he goes south, he crosses the border into Eden. And so there's this, th there's this cultural distinctiveness to this place that they're living now that is really appealing to them. And within that, that's the place where he is most able to participate in the labor that he loves and is best at. Like he's been able to boast, he, his ability to do that has been destroyed by his own family who have sold the, the only chance he was going to have to do that. So he goes south into Eden, participates in a different culture, and his gifts are able to be used there. And in the midst of that, that that work itself is what holds the new world and the old world together, right? Like it talks a lot about the idea of the horses being timeless, like mm -hmm. the timelessness of horses, and in participating in the like the connection between his soul and the horse's soul. That's the closest he's going to get to timelessness, and yet he is he like constantly pushed up against this new world and this old world that you're talking about, Heidi. So he's right. clinging to the work and to the relationship with the horses. To, to allow him to participate in like to dwell in that state of timelessness, but it's the relationship with the girl that pulls him back out of that timelessness and into the conflict between old world and new world. Mm -hmm. And I think like, that's a really the way McCarthy puts that together, I, I think is really fascinating. Um, and, and I think part, then throws us back into the rest of the book because I think the rest of the book is also about that. And like, there's a brutality to what's about to happen to him that feels like it's, you know, Santa Ana era, Mexico, or I mean, like in terms of the way people would talk about it, I, like there's a lot of questions about the way I'm not being political when I say that I'm just talking about the way mm -hmm. Western stories talked about that era. You know, there's like a, right. there's a brutality to it that he's going to get thrust back into and he, and, and the, the timelessness is going to evaporate. Um, I I'm done rambling now. Tim, you I would like to it. read a section. You mentioned the timelessness of horses, David. Yeah. There's a section where John Grady Cole and Rollins um, travel up into the mountains and they're going to bring horses back to the ranch. And there's a conversation that they have with one of the Mexican workers from the ranch. Um, so on, in my edition, it's page 111 the worker describes the Mexican wars and how he's lost, I think he's lost multiple brothers. And then he begins to kind of soliloquize about the nature of horses. So this might be my favorite passage in the book. 111. He spoke of his campaigns in the deserts of Mexico and he told them of horses killed under him. And he said that the souls of horses mirror the souls of men more closely than men suppose. And that horses also love war. Men say they only learn this, but he said that no creature can learn that which his heart has no shape to hold. His own father said that no man who has not gone to war horseback can ever truly understand the horse. And he said that he supposed he wished that this was not so, but that it was so. Lastly, he said that he had seen the souls of horses and that it was a terrible thing to see. He said that it could be seen under certain circumstances attending the death of a horse because the horse shares a common soul and its separate life only forms it out of all horses and makes it mortal. 
He said that a person understood the soul of a horse, then he would understand that all horses, he would understand all horses that ever were. They sat smoking, watching the deep embers of the fire where the red holes cracked and broke. Y de los hombres, said John Grady. The question is, and of the men, like is the same true of men. The old man shaped his mouth how to answer. Finally, he said that among men, there was no such communion as among horses, and the notion that men can be understood at all was probably an illusion. Rollins asked him in his bad Spanish if there was a heaven for horses, but he shook his head and said that a horse had no need of heaven. Finally, John Grady Cole asked him if it were not true that all horses vanish from that if all horses should vanish from the face of the earth, the soul of the horse would not also perish, for there would be nothing out of which to replenish it. But the old man only said that it was pointless to speak of there being no horses in the world of, for God would not permit such a thing. I love that line. No creature can learn that which his heart has no shape to hold. That's my favorite line so far in the book, too. Which I keep wondering if that is part of JGC's journey as like a stranger in a strange land. Like what do you mean, Heidi? You said you said that, if that. He is, that his heart does not yet have a shape to hold this strangeness of this land. Mm. And... He has only himself as a moral compass and of, you know, to make these decisions, these complex decisions, and he's doing the best he can, but there are forces, as we're seeing right at the end of this section, there are forces at work for which he does not yet have a place to hold within his heart, right? And, um... And and I think that's part of the journey of the book for him. He's he's learning how to hold the the shape of those things because mm. he is so young. And maybe that's one of the purposes of making him so young. There was a comment on the Facebook page about him not being believable of being sixteen. I don't necessarily want to go into that too much. There's a lot. There's some good conversation about that on the thread. Um, but I. I think if you're looking at a reason, like great novelists always have a reason to do a thing. They always do. It's not arbitrary. So in making JGC so young, I think that that's, that's part of it. He's not naive. He's not a naive person. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, yet the, the world is a little bit bigger than him still, you know, because he's young. Yeah. There's a lot of things he does not understand. There's a lot of things that he does not understand. And that is a counterpoint to, even in his youth, he's, to me, incredibly mature and incredibly capable. But yeah, there's still things about this world that he's walking into that it does not appear that he's prepared for them yet which might be a good segue to talk about Alejandra. Alejandra. I just want to say, <laughs> I just want to say that as far as his, him being believable as 16, there's a difference between the character and the narrator. And the mm -hmm. narrator is expressing 
the journey of John Grady Cole in a way that is more poetic than um, John Grady would express it. And so I think that that can create a sense that he's more mature than he he is because he doesn't say or do things that are what you would call mature per se. He, the narrator gives us names to senses that John Grady is experiencing. And I think that the, the, there's like a distance between them that's worth remembering. Okay. Aside from, aside from Alejandra, what are the decisions that he makes that you would consider to be not mature? Um, no, I guess I don't really mean that he's making not mature decisions. I'm just saying he's not doing things that are, I, I should have said it dif- differently. He's not doing things that are extraordinary for 16 year old, a 17 year old, other than the fact that he has a gift with horses. And the only way you can express that he has a unique gift with horses is for him to have a unique gift with horses. So the fact that he's 16 and has a gift with horses, that is extraordinary. It's meant to be extraordinary. Um, it's, but it's not like he's going around doing things that most 16 year olds wouldn't do. Well, That's what I, I'm saying. I think like the trip to Mexico is even by those the standards of a hundred years ago, I still think that's fairly extraordinary. Pretty uncommon. But, I, mean, I don't like know the that stuff of stories. That well. Tom so- Huckleberry Finn went down a river. I mean, so I guess- and, and Isn't just... that attributed to him as like, uh, like exception, he's exceptionally adventurous? Sure. I think maybe we're talking about different things though. Like I'm, I'm not saying that he's not exceptionally adventurous. I'm just saying, I don't think that he's unrealistic for a 16 year old. Oh, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and the whole Alejandro thing, to transition back to that, uh, that's not necessarily, I don't know many people who would resist the opportunity to do what he did, no matter how old they were. So I don't know that that's necessarily exclusive to being 16 either. (laughs) Right. There's this beautiful woman who's available and they're I, it's funny because I, like I said a couple times, I listened to this the first time. This is the first that I, this is my second time through the book. The first time I listened to it, the second time I'm reading it. And I was really surprised because um, there's a couple moments in this section that we read that are my primary uh, kind of visual uh, excuse me, like the images in my mind are so powerful from this section mm. that I was really surprised in reading it how short it was. I didn't, it's not, I mean, it's less than 50 pages, this, this like idyllic, like kind of quiet heart of his life. And I, and it's so memorable and so vivid and it forms kind of the internal landscape of how I remember the book. You know how you have those imaginary images in your head of how you picture when you, someone says all the pretty horses and I think of her in the lake and I think of her black hat, them trading horses. And I, like there's the boots under the bed, things like that. And there's like, that's such, such vivid imagery in my head. And yet it's such a short part of the book. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. There, um, when the romance is beginning to bud, there's so little interaction between them. Yeah. So little. And then next thing you know, he's talking to Rollins. Like yeah. If you're not careful, it's confusing. I had to go back and be like, did I daydream about something else while I was reading? I've read the book a bunch of times. And so it's easy to sort of like, you know, settle into the, what's coming next in the story. And so then I like, I had to go back and reread 
There's some missing transitions. Like, yeah. does she ever even invite him to that dance that she says to him, you said you were going to be here? And then he was like, no. did you doubt me? And she's that's like, we don't there. even know. It's a, yeah. That's not in the book. Right. 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 But it's, like, so there's another... a gap there, but it's not a flaw. No, it it's works. like, it's Hemingway. Yeah. It's Hemingway. Yes. It's, it's totally <laughs> McCarthy. It's like, like we're sitting there with these characters getting a little bit drunk and we're like, wait, now what are we doing here? Oh, right. and then we find out later, oh, she invited him. Of course, right. of course. That's why we're at the dance. She invited him. So people talk about how Hemingway is a huge influence on McCarthy and they talk about the prose and like, it's kind of the same, but to me, it's that absence. It's the absence of, of like, it's the sense that he's going to allow you as a reader to, to add things together to fill in things with your imagination. That's so Hemingway. We talked about it a lot with The Sun Also Rises in the church and all that kind of stuff. I can't remember what he called that. He had a phrase for that. Hemingway did. And I think that's the biggest influence on McCarthy where he's going to, you know, you're going to be in one place and the next thing you know, you're in the next place and something has happened and you have your imagination has to fill in the gaps. And it almost like heightens the drama of it because mm-hmm. it couldn't, it wouldn't have, it would have been more clear, but less dramatic yeah. If he'd given us the scene where another she's like, example, Hey, you want to come to the dance with me? Another example is after the breaking of the horses, the Hacendado shows up and starts asking all these questions of John Gertie Cole about what he knows about horses and his opinions about is the sire or is the mayor more important? And, you know, so he, he when the Hacendado shows up, there's no exposition scene that says, and one of the workers at the ranch went and told the Hacendado, man, there's this guy who's like great with horses. That all happens off stage. There's no mention of it, but that's clearly what happened because the next scene, the Hacendado is like realizes he has a great genius on his ranch and he's gonna use him to improve his stock. Mm-hmm. And then maybe play a little billiards and talk about the French. I'd have to say, I think that his relationship with Alejandra is lovely. Like, I I think it's... John, John Grady or the father? No, John Grady. Like, I think it's so intentionally idyllic and it totally works in a story that's, uh, that goes the way it goes. Like, it's... I, I just think it's, like, as I've said before, a pleasure to read. Yeah. And, and it makes sense because you have this kid... Mm-hmm who is very skilled at something that she cares a lot about that is foreign. He's kind of, you know, mysterious. And he, um, he's an interesting person. And so that she would be interested in him makes sense. And then that he would be interested in her makes sense. And so like the, the, the idyllic nature of their relationship is earned despite the dramatic absences that McCarthy offers it. Tim, go ahead. What were you going to say? I, I love the romance also. I love it. And I, I think when, when she shows up, his, the camera slows down and the camera, I mean, like, you know, we just, we read with kind of a camera lens in our mind, at least I do. And I think that McCarthy is so good at when she shows up, when, she's, when she rides for the first time past them in the last section that we read, mm-hmm. the camera just, just 
focuses on her and she's this like she's this flash of color in this like kind of tan scene and then we go to the dance Desert and the camera power. slows down on her again she's wearing a blue dress and a blue ribbon like we see color and we're for the most part our, the palette is kind of devoid of color until she shows up yeah I just, you know you you part of the reason that the romance I think works so well and that it's so that she's so bewitching is because we kind of fall in love with her also, don't we? You know, like she's just, she's something from a dream. And so we don't see the romance of that built on an interaction, getting to know each other. We see it built up because I think we kind of, we fall for her. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. totally in love with Alejandra. <laughs> she's just so incredible. I totally, I totally believe that Cormac McCarthy's writing this novel, right? He's working on it. He's got some ideas about what the novel is going to be. And then she rides into the novel and he sees her in his imagination. He sees her ride across the scene and everything you're describing is what happens to him. It happens to John Grady, but it happens to Cormac McCarthy. And he's like, Oh, so this is going to be that kind of book now. I thought it was going to be a ranching novel. (laughs) And maybe he had like, maybe he had some ideas for, I just, I just really believe like the way it's written, the way it's all presented, the way she does kind of bewitch the scene. I think it, it feels so much like he ran across her in like his imagination ran across this character and the novel began to change for him. And then he probably got to the end of this section and was like, Oh man, you know, now they, you know, they got to go to this next place, but you know, like almost there's a, there's a bit of despair or nostalgia in the end of part two in the writing of it, where you're just kind of like realizing that it's all that idyllic scene is over. And it, it feels like McCarthy felt it reads like McCarthy felt that as much as we do and as much as the characters do. So I, one of the very common accusations leveled against Cormac McCarthy um, is one of the same ones leveled against Hemingway, which is that he writes male fantasy idealized women. And that is said over and over again about both Hemingway and McCarthy. And I'd have to say, I think that's totally true in this novel. However, I think it works. I think it's really important to the novel. I think we have to surrender to it. And I'm kind of speaking to the women who sometimes women can be a little bit threatened by this male fantasy character, women character in a novel, um, because it's so not a real woman. However, I think in this particular novel, it's part of the magic of the story, that there's this woman to this motherless boy who is yeah. everything a woman should be to a man or in, in kind of in his mind. Right. And he, and yet that's why he so, gets swept up by her. And yet it's so precarious because we always have this feeling that the relationship is right on the razor's edge, right? It's never mm-hmm. secure. It's always so overwhelming and so passionate and so full of desire. And so uh, there's and and so mutual, and she is this male fantasy brought to life. And yet it's always just right on the razor's edge. And so I think it's important to kind of surrender to that idea that this is an idealized woman and let that be part of the magic of the story. This is part of what Cormac McCarthy is weaving. Remember, we're talking about a story with this kind of primeval epic scope. Um, and, and it has this quality of 
of magic and transcendence in it. And part of that is the fact that John Grady Cole has found the perfect woman and yet he cannot hold her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a ghost. Yeah. She's, she appears and she disappears and she slips through his fingers and she, we don't get the flaws in her. We don't get the complicated nature of her because he doesn't see her that way. Like that's not part of the scenario here. He, he also hasn't known her long enough for, for that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's super important that she's, she's like, everything. She's like a magical uh, yes. creature. She's like yes. a unicorn. Yes. She's a like, sylph. That's the point. Uh, yeah. She's a sylph. Mm-hmm. Look, she has magical powers. She floats through the air. You know, like, like when we see her, the, like how long, how many times do we see her on horseback before we actually see her walking? You know, like several times, I think. Well, no, that may not be true. But well, I, I know that we do see her. We see her riding right. the first time. Yeah, she's riding all the way until they're swimming. All the time. Pretty, or dancing. She's riding, dancing, or swimming. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's she actually kind of really interesting. Yeah. And the only time that she's not riding, dancing, or swimming is when they're in the dirt. Like one of my favorite scenes in in their relationship is when they're at the dance and talks about how her she's got her bare feet in the oh, dirt. Oh yeah, I love that. And then that. she like leans on him to put her shoes back on, oh, and like yeah. there's this connection to the desert with her. Like I really think the desert rose thing, it, mm-hmm. like a desert flower, is is what is kind of what she's supposed to be. Um, That's good. I love the idea that she like. How did you just put it? She f- floats. floats. Yeah, we should find this. See if. Um, when she shows up in this section, not the first time, but in this this time, okay, one oh nine. Let's see if let's see if that is in keeping with the way he actually describes her. Mid afternoon, he'd ridden all the horses again, and while Rollins worked with them in the trap, he rode a little grulo out of Rollins of Rollins' choice up into the country, two miles above the ranch where the road ran by sedge and willow and wild plum along the edge of the laguna. She rode past him on a black horse. He heard the horse behind him and would have turned to look, but but that he heard it change gates. He didn't look at her until the Arabian was alongside his horse, stepping with its neck arched and one eye on the Mustanio, not with the wariness, not with wariness, but some faint equine disgust. She passed five feet away and turned her fine boned face and looked full at him. She had blue eyes and she nodded, or perhaps she only lowered her head slightly to better see what sort of horse he rode just the slightest tilt of the broad black hat set level on her head, the slightest lifting of the long black hair. She passed, and the horse changed gates again, and she sat the horse more than well, riding erect with her broad shoulders and trotting the horse up the road. The Mistanio had stopped and sold in the road with its forefeet spread, and he sat looking after her. He'd half meant to speak, but those eyes had altered the world forever in the space of a heartbeat. She disappeared beyond the lakeside willows. A flock of small birds rose up, and passed back over him with thin calls. Even the birds like flying over him, like there's, oh, yeah. it's like a nymph. <laughs> oh yeah. I've never One thought about that, like that before that she like floats, like there's this nymph ghost-like factor about her. Go ahead, Tim. Oh yeah, right. I, Heidi, I think you're exactly right. This is like, it's idealized. <laughs> I think it's great. I no, it's it's, it's great. not a flaw. It's really yeah. important to the story that we accept the terms that McCarthy gives us. He's mm. he's not just writing a fantasy woman. He's writing like a magical being in a story that changes the course of the story. Um, and it's 
it is, it's really important to accept that and not, I think, not criticize it. I agree. I agree. It, it, I, one thing that's really interesting, David, you pointed out that kind of like they have this, there's this common, it's not just a love for horses. It's an enchantment mm-hmm. with horses. And the first and second time that we meet her, she's riding this Arabian stallion, you know, just an incredible animal. And he's, you know, he's riding Red Bow the first time, a good horse. But the rec- second time, he's kind of riding a scrub horse. And she rides past on this Arabian stallion. And they are unequally sat in the saddle. You know, she's riding this magnificent beast. And he's, you know, he's probably like a couple of hands beneath her just on stature. But as their affection begins to develop between the two of them, he begins riding that stallion imported from Kentucky, so they're now, at least within their relationship, kind of of equal stature. He's now kind of risen. He's also gained a position of more prominence on the ranch. He's been given this special post by the Hacendado. And um, so he's rising, rising, rising. And it gives you this feeling, this could work he could pull this off. He could get the girl. We know, we know there's no way he can have the girl, right? Everything is stacked against him. The cultural barrier is just insurmountable, but there's this feeling in the rising action of his stature, of his position, even of the horse that he's riding, maybe he can pull this off, which is why readers, it's going to hurt. Yeah, because the answer... This is great because the next time she, when she finally talks to him, it's on 117, he's in the barn and he's working with that new horse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's I working with right. the new mares. He's working with the mares, yeah. Um, but on page 129, when they swap horses, which is absolutely intended to cover your kids' ears, this is a very, sexual scene when they're swapping horses and she rides off with this powerful horse between her legs that used to be his could this i mean it's like very intentionally erotic and Mm -hmm. that the horses are participating in this exchange is again intentionally uh, erotic and speaks to the power, as we've been talking about, the kind of the, the fluid nature of like this symbolic value of the horses, um, that they are participating in their courtship and in their connection and, and riding off with JGC's horse, something has been committed to, which is why he's a f- one of the reasons why he's afraid to get in trouble. I had a question about that. I, I completely agree. Heidi, I think you're exactly right. There's also something about kind of like the Western culture, like the ethic of horse riding that I don't quite know. I thought, okay, um, David, if I went to your office and you had this great big desk that you did, you know, all of your work at, and you and I were going to have a meeting, if I sat at your desk chair behind your desk, Not cool. it would be – Right? Yeah. It would be a violation. It would be a not be aggressive. cool at all. Ag- aggressive. And I'm kind of like taking this like seat of power that's yours and I'm just sitting in it. That seems unright. That doesn't seem right. And I wonder if there, 
is a different, if there's kind of an ethic around changing horses, this is something that somebody could answer for me on the Facebook page, is, is what she's doing, clearly she's kind of putting him to the test because this new stallion is under his care. He seems to feel like he does not have permission to let her ride it, even though she's the daughter of the Hacendado. I'm just curious to know, in that culture, what else is going on aside from the kind of like erotic symbolism around it? What else is going on with regards to kind of like the power dynamic of changing horses? I'd be curious about that. If somebody has like a notion of what's going on there, I'd love to hear it. It's a great question. I would say that I, we, this may not be, may not be the three people to um, answer that question on this episode. So unless Heidi, you happen to know a lot about the, the ethics of horse changing. What I know about the ethics of horse riding, I know from Cormac McCarthy. And what Tim <laughs> said seems to make sense. So, <clears throat> um, We're going on an hour. Should we... We should talk about the matriarch. We should talk... Is yeah, it we should... Alfonsina? So let, is that her name? Yeah, her name? I want to look at it through two, these, these two key conversations that change the Alfonso. course of their relationship in his life. We have the matriarch and they play chess. We have the father and they play billiards, they play pool. And they're t- in both cases, they're talking about the old world, old world, the old world versus the <laughs> new world. They're talking about cultures being passed on. They're talking about traditions, duties, all those sorts of things. And those two conversations clearly mirror, are meant to mirror each other. Um, so we've got Alfonso is on 132. Yes, yeah. Both grand aunt and godmother to the girl. Mm-hmm. Godmother, not grandmother. And her life at the Hacienda invested itself, in, invested it with old world ties and with antiquity and tradition. So she's the one that the leather-bound books and the piano belong to. You know, she's holding on to the, to, to the traditions. She represents the traditions. And Cormac McCarthy just comes right out and tells us that. Um, I think in some ways, one of the things I was kind of taken by this time is that she and John Grady actually seem to have a, a, a similar sense of the world, a connection, if you will. Like they, right. they, they actually sort of see things eye to eye. You know, the way they play chess, the respect they have for each other as conversational competitors. Like, I love when books or, or movies even just like have this little metaphor that's actually the action in the scene, but also heightens the stakes of whatever is happening in the scene. So chess or pool while talking about something complicated that you're kind of at odds with. I, I love that sort of thing. It's, it's obvious, but there's a reason why it works. And they, they see eye to eye in the things that they're talking about. He just doesn't want to do what she says. And it, so John Grady is actually being equated with that old world. I I think, do you agree with that? I don't know. I think that he's, I mean, he outmatches her twice. And then the third time she beats him. Maybe there's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Right. Like, um, I, I don't know if I think that he's being equated with the old world, but I'm willing to be convinced. I see it more as he is a match for it. Hmm. Like in himself, whether or not that means he can appropriate the resources of the old world or whether he's going to have to find a new world on his own. Right. Like, um, 
right now, of course, he wants the ranch and he wants Alejandra. Uh, this is Eden. He wants to hold on to it. Um, he wants the promised land. Uh, and But whether or not that's to be his fate is still to be determined. And so I would see it more as he's a match for the old world. He could He could potentially beat it. But that final game goes to her. And I think that's significant. I, I think you could make the case that she's letting him. She's not playing her, her toughest at the beginning. Maybe so. Because she's kind of a ringer and doesn't know how good he is. And then yeah. she's like, oh, this kid's actually good. Time to bring out the big guns. Mm-hmm. Tim, what were you going to say? I appreciate the notion that John Grady Cole kind of in some way is at home in this old world. And also, like we said earlier, he feels like he is, as much as he has left the new world behind in Texas, in some ways he's still got kind of like a new world mentality. You know, he's an individualist in so many ways. But he has this old world order to his like, mm, yeah, I think he's got an old world order to kind of like his moral strength. There's like it no. seems like there's a dissonance in him, like he doesn't belong in either. Yeah, I I really think so. I mean, I, I in some ways, the border trilogy is about these two young men who are torn. They're like they're torn. They are they don't belong in either world. Though they're kind of like have the gifts and the demerits of both worlds. I I think this section with the great aunt is. It's really scary. We start to see what we're up against. You know, if we're rooting for John Grady Cole, he and Alejandra can be together. He can inherit in some way this ranch. That's what we're hoping for. Now we really meet. For me, the father is a dragon, but the great aunt is the grand dragon. She's the she's one. She's like the who, final level. <laughs> yeah, she's the final level. She's the one that must be defeated if John Grady Cole is going to. Because it's all about the. If he's babushkas, going to win. Because it's all about the babushkas. <laughs> it's true. It's true because she's not. I mean, she's not powerful oh, in and of herself physically. Of but she's I mean, so powerful as representative of this world that he's inhabiting now. It's it's fascinating the, the way McCarthy puts it is she says I've seen the consequences in the real world and they can be very grave indeed. They can be consequences of a gravity not excluding bloodshed, not not excluding death. I saw this in my own family. And then she says what Alejandra dismisses as as a matter of mere appearance or outmoded custom. And then it says she made a whisking motion with the imperfect hand that was both a dismissal and a summation. So Alejandra dismisses this as a matter of appearance or outmoded custom. But it's so much more than that, is what she's saying. She's, it, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's more complex than that. It's, these are ancient problems that you can't be, you can't just say, well, who cares what people think of me? And she doesn't present herself as the keeper of the old ways. She describes herself as being rebellious and, of, and headstrong. And that she's, what is it that she said that fighting, uh, she says, Alejandra and I disagree strongly. This is page 135, quite strongly, in fact. She is much like me at that age, and I seem at times to be struggling with my own past self. I think that's super significant to the way the rest of the story plays out because for lots of reasons. But I think it's, she's not just like this guardian of tradition. She's saying 
and, and in fact is presenting herself as as someone who attempted to buck the traditions and yet here she is as the matriarch of the family what that communicates to us is even a very strong-willed woman like Alejandra won't be able to do it because her grandmother tried and here her grandmother is or not grandmother, godmother, but you know, I'm sorry. So with a, f- a few fingers down. Yeah. She talks and, about how the scars yes. are so important. Yeah. Okay. I, I can I proffer a conversation that I think that happened away from the camera. And you can tell me if you think this is realistic. I think this was in Cormac McCarthy's backstory work. Yes. Um, I think Duena Alfonso knew that Alejandra was sneaking out. Yeah. I think she knew. Well, she wasn't By the yet, time... Though. Oh, no, she was. What's that? Was, but they weren't. They, at the time that he has the conversation with her, with Duena Alfonso, he is not, he has not yet connected with... They rode, they were riding together, they but she hasn't together. come to his, she yes. hasn't come to his... They haven't had the scene in the lake yet. yet. No, they've so not had the scene in the lake. They're not sleeping together yet. Right, right. But I think that she knows that she's sneaking out. Yeah, she knows still. how they and this feel is a, about each other. Right. And yeah. if she's sneaking out and like seeing him surreptitiously, this is a grave threat, I think. And I think that um, Dunya Alfonso went to the father and says, You have to shut this down. You've got to shut this down. And I think the father said, I don't want to make it. The father's treasure is elsewhere. I think that the father is about his ranch. Are you writing your adaptation, your screenplay right now? This is the scene you're going to add in the in the screenplay version that you're writing of this book. No, no, I, I, I don't. I think that the father, in some ways, belongs to the old world and complains about the new ideas that are being put in his daughter's head. But I think I don't know. He's not devoted to his daughter in a way that I think he's just going to shut the relationship down. I think that I, I so my, what I'm imagining is that um, the daughter was called out by her godmother. You cannot see him anymore. And I think the daughter went to the father and said, Father, I am going to see him. You're not going to stop me. Tell her to leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think the father was kind of like, oh, man, I've got a fight on my hands. What do I do here? And I think that he didn't shut it down until finally, like, when she starts sneaking to John Grady Cole's room, I think then things had to change. They could not just continue well, that brings us to the conversation between John Grady yeah. and the father, because the father's like, she said, she, he's basically like, he confesses, I don't want to send her to France, but my right? insists that we have to. Right? I think that, I think that is plausible off, you know, off stage. Well, and one thing I think that you're absolutely right, Tim, that the concerns of Duane Alfonso are not the same as the concerns of Don Hector. He is he is thinking about his own realm and Duane Alfonso is seeing uh, Alejandra as, I mean, they're playing chess, right? Alejandra is a pawn. Like she loves her. There's, but she's a resource to be used. A beautiful woman is always a resource to be used. And that is what 
she essentially says, right? She must have her reputation and we, we need her for somebody other than you, essentially, is what she says. Like what, what Alejandra wants will not determine her future. Her future will be determined by her duty to this family and to this place. And I, as the reigning matriarch of this family, it's my duty to put, to make sure that that happens, that she's saved mm-hmm. for that, right? And mm-hmm. protected and sheltered for that. I don't think that she's, I don't think that Duane Alejandra is a monster. She's not just using her as a commodity, but that's the reality. She, I mean, she says the reality is this is she has a job to do for the sake of our family and our tradition. And it's not you, JGC, and put that JGC. in your pipe and smoke it, right? Smoke it. That's what she's saying. And Don Hector doesn't have the same kind of, he, he doesn't have a vision for necessarily the, he's not strategic like that. He's not thinking strategically about Alejandro's future. He is, he's doing his own kind of man's world thing. I think it'll be really fun, Heidi, at the end, like later in the podcasts to say whether or not we think that Alfonso is kind of one of the good guys or one of the bad guys. It's complicated. That's a right? really important question, probably the yeah. question of the, the last fourth of the book. But yeah. this is setting the stage for that. Let's talk a little bit about the conversation with the mm-hmm. father before we go then, because they have this conversation where basically while they're playing billiards, the father talks and John Grady doesn't. Um, he says, he's telling the story and he says the family was ruined. Both brothers were assassinated. Like Madero, she was educated in Europe. Like him, she also learned these ideas. These, He moved his hand in a gesture the boy had seen the aunt make also. That's really interesting. She always had these ideas. They play pool, then he tells the story a little bit. They went to France for their education. He and Gustavo and others, all the young people, they all returned full of ideas. Full of ideas, and yet there seemed to be no agreement among them. How do you account for that? Their parents sent them for these ideas, no? And they went there and received them? And when they returned and opened their valises, so to speak, no two contained the same thing. He shook his head gravely, as if the lay of the table were a trouble to him. They were in agreement on matters of fact, the names of people or buildings, the dates of certain events, but ideas? People of my generation are more cautious. I think we don't believe that people can be approved in their character by reason. That seems a very French idea. Beware, gentle knight. There is no greater monster than reason. And then uh, he can basically talks about the France, the French thing. And then at the end, he says, the French have come into my house to mutilate my billiard game. No evil is beyond them. <laughs> that's a funny, that's a really that's good a great line. line. So what do we, what do we make of this conversation about ideas though? And why is he talking to John Grady about this? He's brought John Grady there. It's almost like confessional on the part of the Haas and Dado. Um, and he's, it's as if he's trying to bring John Grady into the, like, the timing of it is interesting to me and the bigness of this conversation, the themes in this conversation is interesting to me. So how, unpack this. How do, you, how do you read this section in the context of the book and John Grady's relationships with these people? Heidi, would you like to go first? Well, sure. I think that it's worthwhile to point out that quote, beware gentle knight, there's no greater monster than reason is from Don Quixote. Uh, and he's references Don Quixote in, in this section. And Don Quixote is of course about a, uh, a uh, like an altruistic, like a, 
a man who is not a knight who believes himself to be a knight and goes out and tries to have like a great hearted quest and instead just succeeds in becoming ridiculous. And um, I think that it's, it's kind of another exploration of the meaning of the old world and the new world. Don Hector, I'm not sure, and I really want to hear from the two of you, I'm not sure what his goal is for this meeting with JGC. And I, I think that that probably goes to support Tim's theory that he is more accepting of the relationship between the two, just doesn't want it to get out of hand and doesn't want JGC to like kind of get any ideas in his head about the future um so but other yeah i'm not sure exactly what his goal is in having this billiards game what do you think tim i i think it's hard to discern what his goal is i'm with you on that i i think we've got two options that are available to him and he chooses neither one of them one option is come down hard on john grady cole like i know what you're up to like i want you to keep working at this ranch but in order for that to happen you've got to cease and desist with my daughter it'd be easy to get that message across he doesn't do that okay the other one is hey i'm eyeballing you for a future like long-term position as my daughter's husband and you've got all the makings that I want in a future son-in-law. He doesn't make that choice either. So he kind of, and he doesn't do the old school news. That's not correct. He does do the old school, new school thing, talking about French ideas and he's dismissive. But I think what he's about chiefly is he's a practical man. He's a businessman. And I don't think that, I think that you're right. I agree with you, Heidi. I think that as long as it doesn't get out of hand with his daughter, then he's okay to kind of like look the other way. Um, it's, it can't really go anywhere. We both know that, John Grady Cole, but um, I'm not going to like just smash it because my daughter is going to just go berserker if I do try to smother this thing. And um, if I allow it to keep going on indefinitely, well, then my aunt is going to go berserker on me. So I think he's really in a bind. And in a way, he's inviting John Grady Cole in a way, in a way to kind of not, not to bless the dalliance between John Grady Cole and Alejandra, but to maybe express some of his concerns without saying and I'm going to take immediate action. What I think, think he's playing David? the middle course. I'm trying to figure out the beginning of this conversation and what it has to do with what we're saying, because at the beginning of the conversation, they talk about the chapel, right? the chapel that they're going to like desanctify. And the Hasandat is like, I, I think when something is sacred, it's sacred. I like to feel that God is here. Um, and then they begin talking about the, the revolution and and he asks, he says, um, you're not superstitious? And John Grady says, no, sir, I don't think so. And so I'm trying to figure out what this, these ideas of superstition and sanctity and um, sacred spaces has to do with what ends up being the conversation about ideas. 
because on the one hand, we're getting sort of a Brideshead mm-hmm. revisited contrast between reason, like French reason, and the Catholic tradition. Spanish notion of tradition and faith. And the, it seems like he himself is unsure of which one he 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 values the he values the superstition slash faith over the notion of ideas. He looks at the ideas and he says. What's the, what was the point of all that? He says, I'd much rather feel that God was here, um, that God was in this space. And I think that that's in keeping a bit with the way, I, th- I think that John Grady would feel the same way if he right. could give voice to that. And I think that's why the Hasandata, Hasandato set, has a kinship with them. And I think that the way they look at horses eh, in a way expresses the notion that they believe in like sacred spaces right. over ideas like valuing the sacred over the and the superstitious to use their word over like reason well and oh go ahead and i think the horse their relationship with horses are representative of that and so he seems to be i guess what i'm just saying is he seems to be recognizing that in john grady but what's he doing with the daughter though like is he it almost feels like he's sending him a warning like look she's going neither of us can do anything about it what is a father a father is nothing he says She's going, even though I've said that I don't want her to go. Um, she's going to come back with ideas, and it's going to be a problem. And it seems like he's sending a warning to, to John Grady. Because he cares about John Grady, even if he doesn't want them to be together. That, that's kind of how I, can I, see that. I think the section I can see might that. be going. I don't think he but we have to read more. anything about the two of them. I don't... I. I I'd be really curious what our our listeners think because he is a father and a Catholic father. There's no way, there's no way he knows that his daughter is sleeping with John Grady Cole. I don't believe it. I don't think, I don't know if I think this conversation is about the two of them at all. I, so. You, you mean, you mean, mean John Grady and Alejandra? Don Hector is talking to him about their relationship at all, unless, and the only, like I said, I don't know what that conversation is about, but the other option is Don Hector to me is already selling him to down the river and knows he's doing it. And this is his goodbye. Well, okay, but he gives him a warning. I mean, he literally says to John Grady, beware, gentle knight. There is no greater monster than reason. Right. Like, McCarthy's not going to have him literally saying, beware, watch out. The new world is But is the a old world, I agree with you there. And this is why the the conversation, I, like, it's very easy to figure out Duena Alfonso's goal in the conversation, which is to warn him off. Because she says right? it, yeah. Um, but we also know that she was rebellious as a girl too. And so she's aware of the dynamic there. We we don't know her full story yet. With Don Hector, though, he is, I think this conversation is still ambiguous. And because here's why. The, the conflict between reason and tradition is not old world and new world. Those are both old world. They are like they're both found like it's France and Mexico is what he's talking about. And he's saying like back in the old days, we lost our traditions because people went to France and learned their ideas and then came home and we, we didn't we didn't have a shared vocation anymore. Right. And that's why he doesn't want to send 
Alejandra away. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just don't think there's any way that he would countenance a sexual relationship with his daughter, with a a, a hired man. I will say I've never thought about, I had never considered that either till, you know, Tim, you said that you think he might be turning a blind eye. I'd never thought about that before. Um, But I think he is saying, don't get any ideas. You're always going to be a hired man. Like you're always going to be my employee. I, I first off want to say I'm arguing against the kind of cultural evidence that's presented in the book, which is what you described, Heidi. Like this is a Catholic man who would never countenance a sexual relationship with his daughter. I fully realize like the weight of that, um, the weight of that counter argument for me. Well, and you said at the beginning, you were going to present it as if you believed it, but you weren't sure. So, yeah. yeah. And I'm still not sure because that is a massive, I mean, I guess like that's a tremendous obstacle to my interpretation, but I'm going to stick by it just for the sake of um, making the point. I think that if he was a (laughs) devout man, the priest would have been there and would have desanctified the place because there's a billiard table in the old sanctuary. But I think that he sees the Catholic faith as as chiefly kind of something useful that binds communities together. It's a healthy practice for families. He calls it superstition. But I don't think he believes it. I don't think he believes it. Mm -hmm. It's superstition. Yeah, I don't think he's a devout believer by any means, but he is part of an ongoing cultural tradition that he is saying, we're Uh, going to uphold that here on my ranch. Yeah, 100%. I might be reading him as overly pragmatic, I still think that's really plausible. But I think a lot of what makes it plausible for me is I think that he and the great aunt know, I think they know fairly early on that something is going on between Alejandra and John Grady Cole. Do they know it's a sexual relationship? Mm, I don't know. I don't know when they discover that, but I really do think that the Hacendado is in a absolute bind mm-hmm. at home. He's in an absolute bind. And I think that the guard coming through is the perfect opportunity for him to relieve the pressure of this bind that he's in. Right. And that's why I wonder if there's a, the purpose of the conversation is just. Like heads up. Like I think. Well, I mean, there's still more, there's more to be revealed about this section and what's happening with why John Grady Cole and Rollins are being arrested um, or being taken away, excuse me. So once we get there, I think it might be useful to come and revisit this conversation. That's a great idea. Yeah. I do love, Heidi, your point about both the Spanish and the French are these old things. Mm -hmm. You know, they're both old world because he basically says even Cervantes could never have imagined Mexico. Mexico. Like there is a a wildness to the place where they live, the, a sort of a wild beauty to it that is un, that is it, it it could never it can't really hold up either of those traditions, and you know that's pretty in keeping with a lot of the even like Mexican legends and stuff like that as well as Western stories, and he I think he he seems to be saying that like in between those two things is this land. It's this place. It's the creatures. And I think what he appreciates about John Grady is John Grady's connection 
to those play to the both the land and to the to the creatures and so he he see he has a respect for john grady that i think is why he gives him the warning because i i think he is warning him here even if john grady doesn't recognize it i mean like cormac mccarthy's not going to put a warning in the middle of it um without it um without like on accident i guess is what i'm saying but Right. Well, we should probably wrap this up. So let's go to some final thoughts. And we're going to, next week, we're going to talk about a little bit more of a, a less Edenic, less idyllic uh, experience for John Grady Curl and, and Rollins. Uh, Tim, final thoughts from you? I'm just going to echo my warning. Um, it's going to little, it's going to get a little gross in this section. Up. Buckle up. Buckle up. Seatbelts. Yep. But, but still you? read it. Don't stop. Yeah. Just, you know, let your eyes skim. <laughs> I'm glad you, know? you said it, not me. Like, you know, it's me on the couch watching certain TV shows or movies or whatever when I've got like really my between fingers. your fingers. Yes. I'm like, yeah, like imagine yourself doing that. So skim over, I mean, but don't don't stop reading. If you if you have to skip the two pages that are a little gruesome, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. If you must. Mm-hmm. If you must. All right. Well, this has been fun. So fun. Tim have your um have our conversations about one of your favorite heart books been satisfactory to to your quite uh, satisfactory expectations very satisfying same question to you david are you happy with the way the series is going check in yeah oh yeah i mean i would be happy if we just sat here and like just read passages from it for an hour he's a pretty good writer so do you have any final thoughts nah whatever i said a minute ago was my final thought Okay, so next week we're going to talk. We're going to dive into part three. Um, what's going on in the plays? The thing, Tim. We are two acts into Hamlet, but due to scheduling obstacles, we're going to release them a little bit later because so you're we want to be able it. to release. We're working on it. Yeah. Okay. Act one will be up probably in a week and a half. Okay. Cool. While we're talking about it, we want to let you know about Withy Wendell. If you have not listened to that, you need to check it out. It's a podcast that Graham Pittman and I are doing where we, it's for kids. We talk, we talk to kids, uh, kids book authors. We're doing a little 10 minute section of each episode. That's kind of like close reads for, for nine-year-olds where we're talking about Enesbis, the railway children. There's jokes and shenanigans and nonsense of all kind. So if you have not started listening to that yet or told your kids about it or whatever, we would super appreciate if you would go check that out you can get it wherever you get podcasts spotify apple stitcher whatever you do you can get that and we'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to that and tell all your friends and um it's the newest podcast from goldberry studios we have a few other things coming down the pipe pipeline coming soon um so yeah check that out of course check out the daily poem that's been a little bit sporadic the last couple of weeks because of me because i'm a slacker but that'll be back False. next week False. in earnest yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. So that's that. Heidi, Tim, anything else? Anything else you want to pitch? Nope. All right. Well then for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.